Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden and you're listening to Queer Stories, the podcast for the LGBTQI plus storytelling night I host and program around the country. If you're a regular listener, you'll notice that I am yet again recording a new intro for the podcast. I feel a lot of pressure now to keep things fresh so that the relationship doesn't get stale. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Please check out the back catalogue of stories. There's some really, really wonderful work there. And please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date. Follow Queer Stories on socials for event updates. And please consider checking out my Patreon page. It's a crowdfunding platform where small monthly donations help me continue my work as an independent producer and artist. You can look up Maeve Marsden on patreon.com. Paul Van Rijk was born in Sri Lanka in 1952, migrating to Australia with his family 10 years later. He came out publicly in 1978 and has spent the subsequent four decades as an activist. He's been a regular media commentator over that time, writing on gay and HIV AIDS history, racism in the gay community and LGBTQI families. A social worker by profession, Paul also manages his own consultancy company and blogs regularly about food, family, activism and his dogs. Paul is one of the featured storytellers on My Mother's Kitchen, the Queer Stories podcast collaboration with Google Creative Labs, and this story expands on some of the memories he discusses on that podcast. Enjoy. So I'm going to actually tell you tonight about how to make a Sri Lankan Christmas cake. First, prepare the fruit. Stone and cut the raisins in three or four pieces. Wash and stem the sultanas. Wash, pick, and dry the currants. It's 1959, and I'm sitting cross-legged on the table in the back veranda of our house in Sri Lanka. I'm seven years old, and today my grandmother, Ada, our cook, Rosalind, and I will make the Christmas cake. Rosalind has anchored to the table the cast-iron hand mincer Ada has sensibly bought. Ada's fingers have grown arthritic, and cutting anything into small pieces is painful. Um, I will inherit her arthritis and use an electric food processor. Rosalind feeds the mincer with handfuls of the fruit, each in turn. As Rosalind, Rosalind cranks the, mixer, the mincer, I watch fascinated as the fruits mix together into rich brown worms extruded onto a plate. From time to time, she presses the fruit down into the final of the mincer. I am terrified her fingers will get caught. Cut the pumpkin preserve, ginger preserve, and chow chow in small pieces. Rosalind has taken the thin raffia string from around some brown ceramic pots with bright colored Chinese labels on top. Pumpkin comes, oh, the, the, sorry, the ginger is preserved in a thick, tangy, sugary syrup. The pumpkin comes as small, pale yellow, almost white cubes covered in white sugar. The chow chow, like the ginger, is in a thick syrup. I never stopped to wonder back then why the pumpkin isn't bright orange, like the pumpkin's Rosalind curries sometimes. I never stopped to wonder what on earth chow chow is. I never stopped to ask what these Chinese preserves are doing in a British fruitcake. 
I know nothing back then of the more than 500 years of Chinese silk traders living in Sri Lanka, cheek by jowl with Sri Lankans in the crowded bazaar streets of Petta. I am yet to realize how cultures and cuisines cross-fertilize through simple daily actions between people more deeply than through government policy. Uh, a plate of food passed over the wall, a piece of calico exchanged for three mangoes. I will later learn a term for this, coined by the Australian social anthropologist Ghassan Haj, everyday multiculturalism. Right now, all I know is the goldenness of the preserve shining in the afternoon sun and the delicious pungency tingling my nose as the preserves also now are minced. Shred the candied peel finely and chop the cashew nuts. Mix the different kinds of fruit together with the flour, put the butter and the sugar into a large basin and beat well one hour with a wooden spoon till very light and smooth. In front of me on the kitchen table is the basin. It's enormous, shallow but wide, brass, hand beaten. You can run your palm around its gleaming inside and feel the dimpling from the mallet, sticks, uh, mallet strokes that made it. I grasp the mixing ladle. It's like a cudgel, a thick cylinder of dark, smooth wood ending in a fat bulb. It's easily as thick as my arm, but surprisingly light. This is my first job in the cake making, creaming the butter and sugar. The mixture is like sand at the shoreline on the beach, grainy and wet. I imagine the great sugar castle I could make from it. As I stir, the mixture gets paler and sloppier, like the cream topping on the buns the bakers down the lane make. I am allowed to wander from the house for hours on end during the day. Sometimes I end up at the bakers, watching the men in their sarongs and singlets playing card games and drinking whiskey while the loaves bake. Is this where I begin to desire men? Certainly there is something about the sight of black hair fringing the top of the neck of the singlet, the gleam of sweat on bare arms, the way the sarongs hang loosely open between their legs. But it's all just feelings for which I have no words with which to make sense of them. But I sense what I'm feeling is wrong, and that's enough for now. Then add the yolks, one at a time, beating well after each is added. Mix in the semolina gradually. Semolina, another curious element of the recipe. Most cakes in the European tradition use flour as the main component, and so do the other cakes in Ada's recipe book. Semolina is flour made from durum wheat. That's the wheat that's used to make pasta and couscous. In Indian cooking, though, it's often used to make cakes, and so the Christmas cake tells more of Sri Lanka's history. This time, it's about Mughal empires in northern India in whose courts these Central Asian conquerors ate sweet cakes made from their native wheat. Like court food in other cultures, these cakes transgressively move beyond the palace into the home. From kitchen to kitchen, the sweets traveled south, crossing the Polk Strait, separating Sri Lanka from India, 
into the Tamil-dominated north of the island. Durham wheat was displaced with the coming of the Europeans, first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and lastly the British, bringing their alien winter wheat from Europe. I like to see the semolina in the Sri Lankan Christmas cake as a subtle culinary act of enduring anti-colonialism. <laughs> but, but I am getting ahead of my nine-year-old self again. All I know as I sit, <laughs> yeah. All I know as I sit cross-legged on the table, wedging the basin between my knees, is that the semolina is making it harder to stir the batter. <laughs> then add the fruit, nuts, and spices. That's what the Europeans came for, spices. Cinnamon, in particular, from Sri Lanka. For centuries, the spice trade into Europe was controlled by Arab merchants. They carried spices up through the Middle East to Venice. The Venetians onsold those spices into the courts of Europe at exorbitant prices. It was the Portuguese who first decided to break this monopoly, sending Columbus off in the wrong direction, as it happened, <laughs> to find the spice islands of the east. They were more successful with Vasco da Gama, who went south and around the bottom of Africa and ended up in Calicut on the southwest coast of India. Then the Dutch arrived with the first global corporation, the Dutch East India Company, and displaced the Portuguese. Now, neither of these two nations sought to rule Sri Lanka. Um, they set up trading posts and they entered into marketing contracts with the Rajas. When the British arrived, they were in the full flush of empire building through military force and ownership. Sri Lanka became a British colony and remained so for a century and a half until 1949. Lastly, the brandy, rose water, bees, honey, and syrup, vanilla and essence of almonds. Arabian influences now. Rose water, the scent of paradise. Bees, honey, and almonds, foods of paradise. The whites of eight to 10 eggs beaten up to a stiff broth, ready a tin, not too high, lined with two or three folds of white paper, well buttered. It is best to have about six folds of paper at the bottom. Pour the mixture into the prepared tin and bake in a moderate and steady oven from four to five hours. Is this when I become a cook? Or is it when I hang around in Rosalind's kitchen, taking a turn at grinding spices, tasting the curry gravy, and offering suggestions for improvements? More salt? Um, more chili? Uh, more dried fish? Or when, as a teenager in Australia, I come home from school and make a ham, cheese, and tomato jaffle as a snack? <laughs> or my first paid catering job, preparing a Sri Lankan feast for a friend's birthday? I don't know. I only know that somewhere along the way, this millennia-old practice of transforming combinations of plant and animal matter into fuel for the body and the soul became as natural and necessary as breathing. Ada and Rosalind take the cake across the road to my uncle's for baking. We don't have an oven. Back on the veranda, I run my finger around and around inside the basin, coating it 
with the deliriously complex flavors melded into something so much more than its parts. Ada and I are Sri Lankan burgers, a hybrid race, a mixture of Portuguese, Dutch, Sinhala, and Tamil. We are the westernized middle class that worked for the British colonial administration in Sri Lanka. You can read this Christmas cake as a metaphor for we burgers, if you like. I am too busy licking to philosophize. <laughs> when Sri Lanka became independent, similar nationalism took hold. We burgers were clearly not welcome anymore. I can understand that. The burger diaspora settled in Britain or its former colonies, Canada and Australia mainly. It's in Australia that the answer comes to the question, what is chow chow? It's choco. Yeah. It's the fruit of the vine that defined that time of my arrival in Australia as it grew wild over the outside dunny. How appropriate that this multicultural cake should all the time, oh God, I'm going to cry, have, con have contained in it an ingredient from the future. A future in which another cultural strain would be added to the hybridity that is my nature and the nature of my children and grandchildren. It is midday, early December, sometime in the 2000s. The summer heat is not oppressive with humidity here in Australia as it was on a day in December 1959 in Sri Lanka. I open Ada's recipe book and I turn to page 95, Christmas cake. First prepare the fruit, store and cut the raisins in three or four pieces, wash and stem the sultanas, wash, pick and dry the currants. My love to Ada and Rosalind. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this story, please share it on social media and hashtag it queer stories so I can share it further with the world. Hope to see you at one of the events soon.